Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. I, I poured two glasses and set them in front of me, but I do have one interesting comment about them that I will I'll put in, and and maybe I'll get your opinion on that, Jackson, too, because it's kind of a a wine opinion, I guess, but it's not about the wine; it's about the glass that it's in. So, which is kind of an, a weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Mason, what are you sipping on tonight? I know that we just said that we didn't want to get too much into it, but I think that's a good so, way to start out. You know, to uh, butcher names as usual, I have a Hernandez de Sao Miguel 2015 Echol dos Angolos red wine. Uh, so this is the first wine I've opened out of my uh, gold medal wine store um, second quarter um, wine thing my wife got me. So this is a Portuguese uh, wine, a blend. So that's what I'm sipping up. Nice. And uh, if people want to know more about it, when can they tune in to hear a mini episode mashup of what I'm drinking and what you're drinking? So I believe we will be having a mini episode mashup coming up on Monday in celebration of the Chilterberg. That's right. Yeah. So uh, if you guys want to tune in, so it'll be the Monday after this episode drops, Mason and I will be doing more thorough reviews. And speaking of more thorough reviews, I will not go too much into mine. I'm actually drinking two different Merlots. One Merlot is from France. The other Merlot is from High Plains, Texas. I think they're both very good, but they're so different from each other that I really want to get into it more, like more in depth in the mini episode. One thing I did want to talk about a little bit, maybe Jackson, uh, you can talk a little bit about. Oh, did we mention that no, Jackson? We did not. Okay, well, Jackson Blood is joining us, uh, our wine expert friend. Who, anytime we have any sort of questions about wine, this is the person that I always go to. Uh, I have two new wine glasses that I got, and they're not the standard shape. They kind of have like a weird twist in them, and are kind of twisty looking, and they look really cool. I'm not really thrilled about drinking out of them, and the reason is. The wine catches behind – they're very large swirls, so the, the mm -hmm. wine catches behind the swirls, which makes it awkward to drink. And then also, I don't know if it's just me or if it's true. I don't think the aromas from either one of these wines or from the Malbec that I had in these same glasses is as strong as from a standard wine glass. And it didn't really occur to me. I did a little bit of research, and apparently wine glasses are designed in a particular way. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that, Jackson – while you kind of give a short review on what you're sipping on tonight, but how, how much does the glass shape play into the aroma, the nose that comes off of wines? Well, basically, like the idea behind a glass is that you're trying to encapsulate the aroma a few inches away from your nose, so basic, so you can get, um, you know, a, a clear sniff of it. Mm -hmm. So, but honestly, I think as long as you're looking at a standard wine glass with a decent sized bowl it's it's kind of there are differences but i think a lot of it is redel salesmen trying to push different glasses i appreciate it from an aesthetic standpoint there's something really nice about a you know very well made thin wine glass but so long as it's not you know kind of a heavy bulky thing that you're carrying with the palm of your hand it doesn't make too big a difference okay so exactly the wine glass that i drink out of which is just a regular cup <laughs> oh yeah, so I always I always drink out of a wine glass. And I got these new ones because they're cool looking, but I don't know if I'm going to continue drinking out of them. They they do feel kind of cool, but they're just a little bit awkward. And mm -hmm. um, 
Actually, if the swirls were the other direction, it would be less awkward because then they would, it, it, they're, it's almost swirled like it's designed for like a left-handed person because like the, the way the swirls are, it's exactly where your hand would rest if you were drinking with your left hand. It, hmm. It's very weird. And they're, and they're deep. They're like half an inch deep. So yeah, they, they look pretty aggressive in the picture. Yeah. Me. They're, but they're very interesting. The cups are beautiful. I just, I don't know if I want to keep drinking out of them because they're just kind of odd, <laughs> but it may <laughs> just be because I'm not used to it yet. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it. It's just, you know, for wine glasses, so long as you get an initial taste of the wine, I think it matters less than you would imagine as, as long as you're not, you know, sniffing and analyzing the wine throughout the meal, you know? Mm. Okay. I guess that makes makes a lot of sense. So speaking about analyzing wine, what did you what did you end up uh, going with the sip on while we do this episode? So I just opened up a bottle of a, a, a Kelly Fox wine, and it's a Pinot Noir from McMinnville, Oregon, which is in the Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. In a 2017, and it's uh, from the Aharani Vineyard. And I think this winery was, uh, this vineyard was just bought up for another winery. So this is uh, the last one from Kelly Fox. So it's kind of an interesting wine. It's a biodynamic, Demeter certified vineyard, 12.5% alcohol, quite low for an American wine. And it's really a nice wine. So you're getting kind of like a, you know, a hit of dried mushroom, earth on the nose, um, maybe kind of wild, sourish cherry. Um, it hasn't opened up fully, so I'm not the best to judge. But yeah, maybe maybe some strawberry, ripe strawberry. But you know, very nice wine from Oregon. You've been spending a lot of time down in that area lately. Is that correct? Yes, I have. Were you were you able to pick this up at the winery, or did you get it uh, locally? I got this uh, locally, but I've picked up a few things from the wineries. Cool. Do you want do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your your journeys, or is that confidential at this time? Um, it's not confidential. It's, uh, just in progress. It's, so I can't give too much Got about it. it, but okay. I've been looking at, you know, land getting involved a little bit more on the vineyard side of things. Uh-huh. So spent some time there checking out vineyards, checking out the region. And it was, you know, really interesting to see. That's, that's one of my favorite, favorite parts of the country. When we, when I was a kid, we would drive all the way, we would always drive up from Sacramento to Seattle or to yeah. Vashon Island right there. And I, I love driving through Oregon. We did a lot of camping in the Willamette Valley and over in the Applegate um, Valley and just that kind of that area in the central and, and Western Oregon. And it's just, it's so gorgeous out there. I, I love it so much. Yeah. It was beautiful out there. Especially, yeah. especially this time of year. It's, it's nice cause it's not as wet and although fall there is awesome too, because you get all those fall colors. Yeah. No, it was really nice when I went out, there was still kind of a lot of rain, but I don't mind that. So, mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's nice. All right. Uh, you guys want to get into our topics for tonight? Yeah. Okay. So we could go about this a couple of different ways, Jackson, because you and I talked about this on Twitter and Mason, you're, you're out of the Twitter loop most of the time, (laughs) (laughs) but. Uh, you and I talked a little bit about this, so we could either go with, I've got two main topics for tonight. The, the main, main topic is an article that is from, uh, Vine Pear that's about, uh, some changes to acceptable grape varietals in Bordeaux. And the mm-hmm. other one is about, is that Jackson, you had some comments on a previous episode that we did on tariffs. In, in particular, tariffs, uh, with the whole, you know, tariff controversy going on right now between the United States and China. So yeah. what do you guys want to tackle first? You want to talk about Bordeaux or do you guys want to talk about tariffs? Well, I know Jackson has a lot of knowledge on Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the tariffs would be a like a maybe not not to speak to how much Jackson has to say about that, um, but probably a shorter subject. Okay. So that way we can have the bulk of the episode on um, kind of this Bordeaux thing because it's a I think it's very, very big 
like yeah. on what it is. Okay, and it's, it it applies to a lot of other regions as well, so okay. it's not going to stop with Bordeaux. But yeah, if you want to tackle tariffs first, we can go ahead with that. Okay. Well, so just to give the listeners a summary, if they didn't listen to the the previous episodes, is there is a um, I wouldn't even say it's a trend, but there's there's basically a, a trade war going on right now between the United States and China. And this has greatly impacted the wine industry. And my words, not necessarily words from a mar- uh, an article or anything like that, but it's distorted the wine market, particularly in relation to imports into China. So a lot of uh, wineries and vineyards in California in particular that were exporting a lot to China have now had to cut back or cease uh, cease exports. Well, I guess it, I guess it would be the other way around. So I guess China has ceased importing from a lot of these places in California because of these tariffs. I think I think Mason, we were saying that it's something like a nine, an effective ninety six percent markup right now in China I, because it's it's been several successive increases in tariffs. So compounded, it's something I like ninety six. So, yeah, and they have. Now, granted, China has always imported a lot from Australia, but they've kind of switched over to importing more fine wines from Australia and basically not importing any mid-level or low-level from California or very much less than that. Do you want to go ahead and and speak to that a little bit, Jackson? Because I know this is something you know a lot about. Yeah, so I I was looking over the uh, tariffs recently and kind of how they've been impacting the American wine industry. And yeah, so basically the current tariffs are putting the price of American wine up 96%, which is a huge amount. Mm -hmm. What's worth bearing in mind, though, however, is is, like you said earlier, this is going to impact primarily lower-level wineries. But there was actually a large increase in Chinese investment in Chinese uh, purchase of large wineries, particularly around central northern California. And they were sort of making wines marketed to the Chinese palate, which tends to, they tend to prefer slightly sweeter, quite full-bodied, heavy red wines, which California is quite good at producing. So it is a missed, it's a missed opportunity in that sense, because they were going to put a lot, a lot of money into the U.S. wine industry. And I still think that the U.S. is massively underdeveloped when it comes to vineyards. So it is a missed opportunity, even if there's a lot of fundamental problems with the Chinese wine market and how long term it is. Mm. Well, kind of, kind of to that point, the uh, the way that the Chinese wine market. One of the things that Mason and I were talking about a lot in the previous one. There's been, and it hasn't been specifically about wine, but there's been a lot of Mises Wire articles and and a couple of other free market articles where they're cautioning uh, people investing in China because they think it could be a malinvestment because this is largely their government, uh, their central bank, and our central bank are funding a lot of the the money that is available in China. For their middle class, which is the bulk of the people who are buying these types of luxury products, and they're seeing things like uh, luxury cars, luxury you know wine, luxury different different types of food and stuff like that. That this is a I guess a top heavy kind of fake market, and that at some point now, granted, Austrians and free market type people are very famous for saying that oh it's going to collapse, oh it's going to collapse, and it takes you know ten years longer than they expected for it to collapse. But at some point, it does. You know the the uh, devil comes to collect his due, so to speak, and uh, you do. There, we will see a turn in the Chinese market. Now, do you think that China has developed enough that even if there is a downturn in the market, that they will still have a? I mean, there's a billion people there that they'll still have a very large uh, consumer base for the now expanding Australian uh, wine market. That they're that Australia is expanding specifically to export to China. Now, granted, China is not their biggest. Their biggest importer right now is still Europe, 
But uh, and actually, I think or I think America is actually a bigger importer of Australia. I, I don't know. I'd have to look at the numbers again. The UK, the UK is still the largest. Oh, is it, it, okay, so. is it the UK? Okay, so that but they do seem to be kind of switching a little bit of their production toward China. But is wine is wine? I guess agile enough that if the Chinese market does collapse and they produce a lot of these, like you were saying, they prefer bolder, sweeter wines. Is is wine manufacturing agile enough that they can kind of switch to a different industry's palate, but using the same grapes? Well, basically, I, um, I to, to some extent, I think that's true. I think it's pretty easy, especially because Australia and California are already situated to produce those kind of wines quite easily and cheaply. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's an issue. The issue, but, and you were asking earlier and you were talking about whether it's a viable long-term wine market and whether it's worth it to focus on sort of building up a consumer base there. And whether, I think that eventually a crash will come in China. If you look at the real estate market, you look at, you know, these massive condominium developments, these sort of reconstructions of European cities that are for purely speculative purposes that not a single person lives. And there's clearly some sort of credit or debt bubble going on on in China. The problem is that not the problem. The thing is I'm not I think there's a large enough population and there's a large enough economy for it to be able to take a hit and it could have, you know, bad times for five, ten years, but I'm sure it would reemerge because it's just so developed at this stage. Mm-hmm. And I and I think even if there is a crash, it's much better to target younger consumers because wine consumers, like all consumers, are incredibly brand loyal. And if you get, you know, some if you get the Chinese drinking American wines earlier, then you're going to build up more loyalty to those wine brands and to those regions. That makes sense, especially if you can get, I guess, get them to start recognizing lesser known wine regions in the United States, like Napa, Sonoma, Willamette Valley, all very famous, Columbia Valley, very famous. But then you've got some of the smaller regions like Applegate or, um, uh, well, Applegate's a good example. But then, you know, Virginia, for example, that doesn't export a lot out of Virginia. Uh, and there's a couple of different AVAs there or here, you know, here in Texas, we don't export anything. But, uh, that, you know, there's, there, <laughs> there are, there are, there are several regions here that produce good wine. And if nobody else in the world knows that your region exists, even if there was a downturn and there, and people stop, stop buying a lot of it, if they at least recognize that quality wine comes out of, uh, let's say, you know, Texas High Plains is what I'm drinking tonight. So, uh, you know, they recognize that Texas High Plains produces quality grapes and quality wine, then at least that, that allows yeah. you to sustain over time. Yeah, and I think it's also worth remembering there's there are multiple wine markets in China. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you have, you know, the typical large heavy red wines, sometimes very expensive wines used during banquets, which is a cultural kind of where you presented more expensive wines similar to, you know, a business dinner as sort of a way to show, you know, that you're a good host. But on the other hand, there's actually a pretty sophisticated Chinese white wine market as well. And if you look at Hong Kong, they have the largest auction sales of fine wine in the world, including Burgundy, which they're switching over to, which is not sort of a heavy, you know, in your face red that requires real sophistication to appreciate. Okay. Oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. The Burgundy, they're, they're very famous for Pinot Noir. Yeah. Uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Okay. You know, kind of let, let's stay on this topic real quick because there is one other thing that is, is very topical and more recent, and that is the tariffs with Mexico. So, mm-hmm. uh, Trump, Trump announced via tweet that he will be imposing a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods. Uh, I think there were some exceptions that when you look at the details, but in the tweet, it just says five, 5% across the board and it will steadily increase until they stop. 
uh, allowing basically Central Americans and South Americans from crossing through Mexico into the United States. And as I was reading about this, and I did not realize this, but one of the largest agricultural products, now they put them together, so I don't know how much of this is wine and how much of this is beer, but they say one of the largest agricultural products imported from Mexico is wine and beer. I would, I would venture to say that Beer is probably the larger of the two, but I do know that Mexico does have a growing uh, a growing wine production, particularly in I, I'm I'm blanking on the the valley's name, but it's in Baja. It's uh, Guadalupe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, they do have a growing wine industry there. What do you think about What do you think about that, Jackson? Do you think that that's going I to guarantee you it's gonna it's beer and tequila that's like ninety nine percent of it. It's, okay. Corona, Negro, Modelo, you know, the list goes on. Think about how many Mexican beer brands there are. Yeah, that's kind of uh, what I was thinking too. Uh, the Mexican wine market's pretty interesting because for a long time, I'm not sure they got rid of it. Mexico actually had has an extremely high tariff on wines, 50%, which is, you know, absurd for a Western country. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always kind of a, a decent-sized domestic wine production in Mexico, particularly emerging in Bajas, where they can produce quality wine. But there was some around near the Texas border, you know, yeah. not very good. There, people brought mission grapes, you know, you need it for mass. Right. Um, but it's it, it, a lot of that is domestic uh, consumption. I've had it once or twice. It didn't wow me. I've heard there's some good stuff from Baja, but I would imagine it's still very boutique there. Yeah, that's when I was out planting with uh, Ricky, who's in the Mount Davis AVA and here in Texas. He was saying there is some good stuff coming out of. I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I don't speak Spanish, but it's like Valle de Paras. Valle de Paras, I think, is how you say it. And which is basically right across the border from where he's producing. And he says most, most of the stuff they're producing is not very good. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, mission grapes, a lot of kind of weird, weird grape varietals that you don't think of high quality wine, um, coming from those grape varietals. But he said that it is kind of changing a little bit and they are starting to produce some better stuff. And you, you're getting a lot of, uh, mostly young vintners and winemakers who are going like, look, you know, this is, we, we can produce good stuff here. We should. So I wonder, I guess time will tell what ends up happening, and it may be that these tariffs never go through, um, but I, I'm, I'm curious to see if this really does – say that again? It's making avocados even more expensive. They were $3 the other day. That Yeah, that's what, that's what I heard is that the <laughs> avocados – and there, there's been jokes going around online that, that Trump is specifically doing this to own the libs because every young millennial liberal has to have avocado toast like every day or else they'll die. So well, I need it for guacamole. I need it for that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I I love avocados in guacamole and and actually I've started. Th- this is totally unrelated, but because my wife loves sushi so much and I don't like sushi, uh, I've actually though started realizing that not all sushi is covered in seaweed. Correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess I never realized. So I can actually order it with some other type of wrap. So they have like this like pink kind of papery wrap that I think is pretty good. It's like mm-hmm. rice paper or something. And yeah. and then they also have like um like a radish, like a radish on the outside of some of them. Mm-hmm. I've never had that before either. And I was like, this is really good. And she doesn't like it with avocado. So if they won't take the avocado out, she'll like pick the avocado out and give it to me. And then I've also learned that like I don't hate fish. I just don't like fishy fish. So Salmon is fine, and tuna is fine, and so I do Both actually like it. Are fishy fish? <laughs> oh, are they? Oh, see, well, because yeah. Oh, because like you know, like when I we were at the revolving sushi 
cafe or whatever it is where they bring you all the sushi on the conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. And normally this garlic tuna is like my favorite thing ever and I will eat it because there's no, there's no seaweed on it. It's just like a piece of tuna with this like crispy stuff on it and garlic sauce on rice. And I will eat like 50 plates of this because it's not filling and it's delicious. And I had like two of them and I was like, I think their tuna went bad because it tastes gross. It tastes like fish. And... <laughs> And she was like, oh, it tastes fine to me. And I was like, no, some, something's wrong with it. I'll, I'll just switch over to the salmon. And the salmon tasted gross too. So I was like, this is the worst. I think the problem is in the revolving sushi concept. <laughs> it probably is. Normally it's uh, fine. They, I was going to say, they, they turn over their inventory too fast for it to really be a problem. I'm betting you just got fresh tuna. No, but they're, they're not getting, Oh, no, no. They're not getting fresh stuff. That, that could be. I mean, it is Dallas. It is, we, you know, we yeah. are, we are what, you know. They're buying it frozen from distributors. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure. So, okay. Well, anyways, that, that's really totally unrelated, but it's just been my recent discovery that I don't actually hate fish as much as I thought I did. Um, but let's go ahead and move on so that we, cause, cause I, I, I think that this topic is going to get really in depth and mm. it is based on that Bordeaux is, uh, due to climate change is admitting new grapes into their region. Now, Jackson, before I summarize the article, can you kind of explain to the listeners what what the grape varietals mean to the French and the French regions? Well, yeah. So, the, um, like in Bordeaux in particular, or the way the French view grapes, or well, I mean, you can you kind of in the, general because, like, you know, in California, it is famous for like Zinfandel and Cab Sauv and that well, sort of thing. But the in, in like Bordeaux in particular, or Rhone, or you know, I don't know if Beaujolais has this or not, but there, there are particular varietals that they they are allowed to use, and if they use something oh, else, okay. then it's not technically it's not technically Bordeaux, even if it's in the Bordeaux region. Right. Okay. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so basically, Bordeaux is run according to the French AOC, uh, AOC system, which basically means in order to call your wine Bordeaux, or even more particularly Margot or Saint-Estef, your wine has to be from a certain area and follow certain requirements. And those requirements vary region by region in Bordeaux. So, diff- um, But generally speaking, Bordeaux, like all other French regions, you're required to plant and have a, a blend of certain grapes in order to call your wine, say, Bordeaux or Burgundy or Champagne. Okay. In Bordeaux's case, what that means is that you have different grapes on the left and right bank, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon on the left, Merlot on the right being the two more, most prominent examples, but you have Cab Franc, Malbec, a lot of other things thrown in. Um, but basically, in order for your wine to be Bordeaux from that particular area, you have to, say, use um, at least a certain portion Cabernet Sauvignon or at least a certain portion Merlot in the case of the right bank. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Does that answer? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's exactly what I kind of wanted the listeners to understand. And so for the listeners, is if you're familiar with Cabernet Sauvignon, and this is one of the reasons why I really like Madoc, which, Jackson, you introduced me to Madoc. Um, and what is it? Hawk Madoc is how you say it, or Hot Madoc? That's a subregion, Oat Madoc. Yeah, um, it oh, is. Sure. It's a little bit more punchy, a little bit more aggressive, and a little bit more heavy wine than on the right bank, which is a lighter. And and it's it's very much a contrast in what you see if you drink a straight Cab Sauv or a straight Merlot. Is that the Merlot is going to be a little lighter in body, a less tannic, more more fruity i guess uh, it's going to be it's it's very different it's a little smoother than a cab sob and you do kind of see that in now granted they're both blends and so you're going to see a, a variety of different things and that's one of the things that i learned to appreciate after you introduced mason and me to this was 
that you get these blends from regions that are so close to each other. And this is why pretty much I drink red blends now, um, with, with rare exception is that you, you have these areas and they are, they're painting this amazing flavor picture based on their grapes. And it's, it's amazing what they can do on the right and left bank with what is available to them. So they can, they can, they start out, you know, with mostly Cab Sav in Madoc and then they, they have all these other smaller grapes that they use to sort of accent that. So you end, you end up getting this thing, but then recently, I've started, and actually California kind of got me into this, is that they started doing stuff that are in the, um, uh, how do you say, is it St. Emilion? Is that how you say it? St. Emilion. St. Emilion. Is that, is that, is that left bank or right bank? Um, St. Emilion is right bank. Okay, that's what I thought, because it, it, I always thought it was very light and, and different, but I think I just had not great, because I tried a couple of red blends from California that were done in their style. Yeah. And I was like, these are great, but they are much lighter bodied and less tannic than what I normally like. And actually, you introduced me to this concept as well, is that, that maybe I had like palate fatigue. Yeah, it's, you know, and, um, and if it's from California, it's going to be a lot. It's just going to be so much warmer, so you're going to get a heavier wine as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what I was getting. But anyways, that's that's... That's not neither here nor there, but so let me go ahead and summarize the article real quick. So this article is called Bordeaux Winemaker, and the reason I had Jackson summarize this is because it's very relevant to this article. So the listeners need to understand how important it is that certain grapes are used to be certain names in France. So Bordeaux has to have certain grapes, and this article is specifically about Bordeaux. So uh, the article title is Bordeaux Winemakers Respond to Climate Change with Revolutionary New Regulations. Now, everybody knows how much libertarians love regulations, <laughs> but these are, these are, I guess these are semi-private, semi-government because it, there is a sort of independent governing body, but it is enforced by the government. So it's kind of a weird situation. But uh, Jackson, when, we're, when I'm done summarizing, you can kind of explain that a little bit more too. So this is by uh, Edward. I'm going to say his name is Deitch. So it's D E I T C H. Edward Deitch or Deitch. Sounds right. Yeah. So to summarize the article. So growers and winemakers in Bordeaux are worried about climate change. Uh, Bordeaux and Bordeaux Superior petitioned the French government and have been granted permission to plant and use non-Bordeaux grapes in their wines. Uh, it is my understanding. This is this is my side note here. So it is my understanding that um, that they were permitted to plant and use them before, but were not allowed to call their wine Bordeaux if they use these other varietals in their wine. Uh, and is that correct? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's just you're going to have to call it table wine. Okay. All right. So that, that's what I thought. So, but the, the article wasn't clear on that. So I just wanted to make sure. So uh, next point is uh, the change will take effect in 2021. Uh, that's their first vintage that will allow these other grapes. The idea is not to bring, you know, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, um, and fringe on the identity of other regions, but it is to um, allow grapes that are later ripening. Mostly is is kind of the deal, and I, and I think I'll get to that point a little bit more in my summary. So, ten red and ten white will be permitted. Uh, there's a few. I, I, they didn't list all of them that are being considered in the article, but I will give a few of them. So under consideration for red, red is uh, man. This sucks because it's all it's all weird grapes that I can't pronounce. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I can do the. I have the same article pulled up. Oh, you do? Okay. So Mar Marcelon. Yeah. Okay. So it's a cross between Cab Sauv and Grenache. And then they had uh, Castest. Castet. I don't know. Okay. It says it's a rare – I looked these up individually because it didn't say in the article. So it's a rare grape from southwest France. France. 
that is uh, almost extinct, but there are a few like small farms and stuff that still use it. So that apparently this is one that's under cons- in, under consideration. This one, uh, Jackson, you'll be familiar with, and Mason, I think you will too, because um, we've had many Portuguese wines that use this. It's uh, Tor- Torrega Nacional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, part of the blend for my one tonight. Oh, it is? Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's used. It says it's most often used in port, but it's also used in Douro and D, uh, Dao. 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 Yeah. Okay, uh, and those and it's the most famous grape of the Portuguese it's grapes. Full grape. Okay. Um, yeah. It's been Cabernet. Sauvignon. Say it again. It's uh, been compared before to Cabernet Sauvignon in terms of a full age-worthy body. Okay. This is. I, I know that I like. We've been trying these a lot in Douro. Uh, Mason and I, and since you kind of you kind of actually introduced me to Portuguese wines because okay. it's they're great value for one, and two they are very good. Mo- well, they can be very very good or they can be not great, but they're they are <laughs> they're often very good for very good value. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of Chilean wine because Chilean wine is kind of the same way where you can get really really good stuff for a really good value, but it's but the price doesn't really mean anything. It's it's kind of like. You know, sometimes they're really good, sometimes they're not. Anyways, back back to the article. So the other one is uh, Vinaho, so V-I-N-A-H-O. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that's called. It's also called So So Zao, or so it's got an like a little. It's got an Enye, so um, I don't know how. To, yeah, uh, it's also a, a Portuguese uh, grape used in port. And then the last one also has an Enye. It's called, uh, Arinario. It's A-R-I-N-A-R-N-O-A. It's a cross between Cab Sauv and Tanat. So I don't know what that one is, but these, those are some of the red grapes that they're trying to, to get, uh, permitted. And then the white, they only listed two in the article, Petite Mansang, which I think we're familiar with. That's a very common grape in Southwest France, France. And another one that I am very familiar with because it's one of my favorite white uh, varietals, and that's Albarino. Uh, it's a Spanish um, white grape from, uh, is it Galatia or Glacia? Uh, Glacia. Glacia. Well, okay. It's, it kind of, it's um, Albarino in Portugal, but it's oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's my my favorite white varietal grape right now is, uh, and they grow it here in Texas. They it's it's very good here in Texas. Very different than the way that they do it in Spain. So uh, if you guys have an opportunity, check that grape varietal out because it makes a very refreshing um, kind of fuller bodied white. It's it's very good. Uh, so anyways, the grapes under consideration are later ripening grapes to make up for potential warming that will impact the sugars in grapes like Merlot. So one of the one of the things they're worried about is that because it's going to be warmer and that Merlot is going to end up being much higher in sugar and it's going to increase the alcohol volume. And it's also going to change the flavor of what you would normally expect from the right bank that used a lot of Merlot. And you would end up getting these much more high alcoholic, much more aggressive wines due to the heat. Um, there's also a strict condition that the that – the, I guess the governing body will be implementing, and that is no more than 5% of any vineyard is allowed to grow these new grapes, and no more than 10% of any of these new grapes can be used in a wine's blend. Uh, the, new, the new grapes will also not be listed on the labels. So that is the summary of the article. Um, Jackson, you want to go first, and then Mason, you can have your thoughts as well. Well, I, it's sort of interesting the grapes that they're listing, whether or not these are the grapes. 
division because, you know, I can actually think of other grades that would do just as well in Bordeaux. But the interesting thing to me is the fact that they're um, only they're limited in them to five to 10 percent of the overall blend. And they're saying that they can't display them in the bottle, which is kind of which is quite strange to me that they're not show that they kind of want to give the illusion that Bordeaux is remained the same or is going to remain the same when in reality, you know, the left bank of Bordeaux didn't even exist until the Dutch dredged it out in the 17th century. That's right. And, I, I, that's what I heard is I took a class on Bordeaux and they were saying that, you know, it used to be a big swamp and they had to, they had call in the Dutch. And, and a lot of this is, was due to French entrepreneurs who wanted to sell to England and they had a bunch of worthless land there, but yeah, they had, but great access to the ocean. Bank swamp, basically. Yeah. Swamp pasture land. And yeah. that was in the 17th century. Right bank has been growing since Roman times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's been changing. And, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon originally, you know, in Sauvignon Blanc, these grapes originally didn't come from Bordeaux. And these are only a few hundred year old things. So it's constantly in flux. And I think to try to give the illusion that Bordeaux is a static thing with a static Bordeaux sign, I think it's quite silly. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think that, that's just my rant? Well, what now? What I guess to, let's touch on on this a little bit because this is something that I don't know a huge amount about. But the governing body that uh, I guess gives the okay for this, I know that it's not. I, I've actually, I've, I've well, I, I've listened to an interview with the guy who is basically in charge um, of champagne. So he he's the 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 guy who basically helps everybody negotiate what grapes are available for champagne year to year and and does that now and he was kind of talking that he says well there's there's a couple of levels of it one is the is a French national government that you have to deal with but you also have to deal with the EU a lot in this how yeah. much does that impact Bordeaux and how much autonomy do they have when it comes to um cuz you know the very first part of the article is that they say they had to petition the French government for this how much autonomy do they have and how how difficult is it normally to get the French government or any sort of governing body to change their mind about what is allowed, because this is very a very foreign thing to Americans. You know, you know, in the United States, we just kind of do whatever we want, uh, and some things work, some things don't work. But um, as far as like what grapes are allowed, what grapes are not allowed, how much influence is how much is that the government, or does the government kind of let? You know, growers associations or winemaker associations kind of make that decision on their own, and then it just sort of you know red stamps it. I, I'd say it's it's complicated, but I, it's it real in France in particular. It really is a combination of them, mm-hmm. and a lot of these kind of regulations in place to say protect Bordeaux to keep it a certain way. These are downstream from what some of the larger houses and vineyards want as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's another thing worth considering. But um, generally, though. You know, the, with Bordeaux and in, in terms of working with the French government, I, I'm not sure that these vineyards would be producing something dramatically different if they, you know, could put whatever grape they wanted. I think some people would experiment and make cult wines, but for the most part, I think they would largely continue to grow similar grapes, if not the same grapes, and kind of continue to make these blends because Bordeaux has a reputation for that, and that's what consumers expect from Bordeaux. Right. And okay. It's very colluded in the French wine industry in particular, and at Bordeaux even more so because Bordeaux, unlike Burgundy and other areas, is there are much more kind of large houses that have hundreds of acres of property and produce, mm-hmm. you know, millions of dollars of wine a year in the tens of tens of twenty millions in some cases. Yeah. In Bordeaux, um, how much? You know, I know that they've been doing some consolidation of some of the sub uh, regions, and what is do you know how much is consumed by 
the Bordelais or and how much is exported? Is it is it mostly Bordelais who are drinking it, or is it or do Bordelais kind of just drink field wine and and the like the real heavy Bordeaux that is like I guess prestigious is sort of exported elsewhere? Bordeaux is actually it's a relatively small city. It's only about two hundred three hundred thousand people. Oh, okay. So it's it's not a massive domestic market. Most the Bordeaux mark Bordeaux is basically sold everywhere, and people in Paris drink a lot of it. People all over France, mm. unless they're in the middle of another wine region, tend to drink Bordeaux. Uh, what's worth remembering about Bordeaux is it's such a wine centric place, and it's it's a very wealthy part of France in some ways. So they can a lot of them are drinking more high quality Bordeaux, kind of. They'll they'll drink Haut Medoc and they'll recognize producers. They you know Cru Bourgeois is kind of common. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It's not a, not universal, but the Bordelais are sort of. It's a wealthier part of France, and they take pride in having drinking expensive wine. Okay, that make that makes sense. And, and I also know that like Britain is very keen on Bordeaux. Uh, yeah, it's, and historically as well that it's it's been a very. Um, China too is massive yeah. on mm-hmm. Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, basically everywhere that you can buy wine and there's a high-end market, there's going to be the, anywhere the French colonizer is going to be Bordeaux by Bordeaux in Morocco. I've seen it for sale. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Cause they, I mean, that's like uh, of, of the, you know, 70 or 80 bottles of wine that I have right now, it's, uh, I would say probably the largest selection that I have that is not from, I guess the U S would be, uh, Medoc. It is yeah. is because that's what I like, and if I see a good deal on one of the ones that I know that I like, I'll buy twelve and mm-hmm. and just kind of keep it because I know it keeps for one, and also sometimes I don't really feel like trying something different. I want to try. I want to have something that I know I like. Uh, and, and you, you and, are like any good Englishman in that sense. Yeah, you, yeah. You're no, no, no. It's a perfect illustration of why Bordeaux is continues to sell wine. Is they produce a consistent high quality age worthy product year to year and even when you don't like it you're like oh i'm having wine with my lamb i'm happy yeah oh exactly yeah yeah and i and i eat i do eat i do eat some lamb a lot of ground lamb and a lot of uh lately i've been really into cube steak which is like a weird a weird cut cheap cut <laughs> it, it is a really cheap cut i just really into cheap cuts I, I like to you know play around with them you know yeah yeah exactly i i like i felt like i did a really good job making cube steak taste really good and i eat a lot of beef and a lot of lamb so yeah. I, I bought a whole bunch of cube steak and I was like, this pairs really, really well with these Bordeaux style red blends or, or if I have like a real Bordeaux, it, it just pairs really well with it. And I, and I pretty much drink every day, uh, oh, yeah. you know, my oh, hand, yeah, hand, <laughs> hand, hand to my mouth going like, yeah, yeah, I, I drink every day. And it's true. Like I drink probably more than I should, but. Uh, because I've gotten so into it, Mason, you and I talk about it so much, like the amount of wine that mm-hmm. I drink, I really, I don't have to be drinking three bottles a week, but I, but according to some of the articles I've read that if you drink three bottles or under a week, you're still a moderate wine drinker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Really, if you want to be very serious, you could follow the Basque health agency's model, mm-hmm. which is, which I just found hilarious because they, they recommend no more than 5.4 drinks a day. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Jesus. Well, the thing is, like, I, mean, I guess, I guess they do drink at lunch. Yeah, yeah, and I've started drinking at lunch too because half country they do it for breakfast too. But it's you know, it's not like they're getting drunk; they're having you know, yeah, a glass or two glasses, breakfast, two with lunch, maybe two and a half with dinner. So, 
Well, we have at my job now, which is also kind of weird, we have beer at, at the job uh, that's just kind of available in the fridge. So at lunchtime, we also have a chef at my at my job, so he makes us, you know, whatever. So if I feel like it's it's something that will go well with one of the beers that are there, I'll, I'll just grab a beer and, you know, crack the beer and eat my lunch and, and drink a beer while I finish, you know, whatever programming I need to do. So I probably drink way more than I should because I do have a beer at lunch a lot, and then I come home and I have two or three glasses of wine. But um, – you know, I, I'm not getting sloshed, and I feel like I sleep very well still, and and I'm in good shape. So you know, well, it matters. We're going to say cube steak. You can make cube steak bordelaise. You could braise that with red wine, put some mushrooms in it. You know, that's actually that's probably a really good idea. And I do have some border. <laughs> I do have some bordelaise that uh, I actually am not crazy about, but it, it's not terrible or not bordelaise. Um, Beaujolais, Beaujolais is what I have uh, that I'm not crazy about, uh, but. I've had Beaujolais that I think is very. Anyways, we're we're totally getting off off topic here. Mason, per this article, do you have we any questions? <laughs> do you have any questions or comments on it? Climate change and Bordeaux and yeah. Um, well, I read through the article, but it's it is interesting. I thought we were going to kind of expand a little in terms of how climate change is affecting. Well, well we you know, are. So- we, okay, so we, yeah, we no, no, no. That's fine. We we are. I just wanted to make sure that that you and Mason felt like you had the the maximum amount of commenting time on this article. And I know Mason, you you haven't had it. You haven't put too much in yet. Do you have any comments or questions or anything that you wanted to ask Jackson? So the the first thing is this is one of those ones where like so they're worried about this idea of climate change, which you know. I'm not particularly one to be worried about, but like what I, when I initially hear this and when I initially think about this, what I think is going on is it's like, they're like, oh, we don't want it to get, you know, because it's going to get hotter over ripening. So basically they don't want to become California, which has effectively shown that they can produce better wines in some context, you know, not saying that California is always some context. Yeah, exactly. But that's where I also think this is one of those classic, like, we have to look like we're doing something sort of things where like, you know, the, the climate is changing. That's what happens. But they, they, I think this is like one of those setups where it's like they, because they couldn't just admit that like, yeah, we're, we're possibly getting our butts handed to us by not innovating some, we're going to start allowing innovation, but we're going to make it so you can't see it like, Oh, no more than 5%. Well, like if you're really like, you have to be like a, I'm and not that these people aren't master winemakers, but like it can't like none of these varieties can be more than 5% in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So like, and they're talking about bringing in like a nearly a extinct grape varietal, but they're not like looking at any of like the like crazy Georgians. Like, you know, they're, they're not looking at like the places that already have a very hot climate. So like if they thought they were going to get really hot, like the South African varietals, the, you know, the stuff that's growing in Mexico and Texas, like we know what grows in hot climates. So like, and obviously Bordeaux is not going to suddenly become Texas, but right. like to me, it, it seems it's not like an all to do about nothing, but it, it's one of those, oh, because we don't allow innovation in the market and we force these people to make these certain things to get these other things We're we're going to change the rules, but we're going to make it so you can't tell we've changed the rules. Yeah. I, I think the counterpoint to that from the, from the perspective in Bordeaux would be if they started planting completely different grapes uh, from what are done traditionally in Bordeaux when consumers started, you know, finding out that they were, you know, planting 50% Syrah in their Bordeaux, then you could easily have people run away from Bordeaux and be like, I don't trust these wines anymore. So, <laughs> you know, like, that's how well, consumers... That, they, that does make a lot of sense to me, especially when you have a lot of the French grapes in particular, is that's their reputation. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's... 
to some extent, you know, the numbers we're looking at, 5 to 10 percent. And if you look at the, the numbers predicted for climate change and what you had in the past, you know, 50 years in Bordeaux, you, in the past 50 years, you had something like 3 degrees Fahrenheit, right? And that's that's actually quite significant, but that's not super significant. And what's important to remember is France has so many varieties of grapes. Italy has so many varieties of grapes. These grapes have been kind of gradually bred and developed for very particular climates in very particular regions. Mm -hmm. So I think the adjustment you have to make is much more subtle than, say, changing from Merlot to Morvedra. I think it's yeah. much more like slow, you know, you say, I'm going to plant a little less Merlot this year and a bit more Cabernet Sauvignon, and I'll throw in some Malbec. You could easily throw in Malbec. That's a traditional Malbec. Um, yeah. Well, that, and not as well, I would put in because that can produce an earthy wine and that's a later ripening grape. Well, and that's that's one of the things that that they grow in the Texas High Plains, which if you if you go straight east from Texas High Plains, you're really in basically the middle of the Mediterranean or northern Morocco. So it is it's hot in High Plains and they do they do well with Malbec, but they did used to grow Malbec a lot in Bordeaux, but wasn't there like a frost in like the in the 1800s or 1700s and it just killed all the Malbec so they switched it all to something else except for okay. except for uh there was like one region that continues to do it is it is it coat uh coat um I, I don't remember what it is it's, it's coat Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um yeah, there's not much of it left anymore, and there was kind of they thought it was extinct, and it turned up in Argentina and did quite well there. Yeah, um, that's something you can bring back. There's Bordeaux actually used to have a lot more grapes than it does today um, because grape wines used to be much more often field blends and not you know marketed on the grape variety. So I'm mm -hmm. sure you know I think they should I think they should allow more innovation and all of that. And I don't I don't think it necessarily means changing the Bordeaux style. It just means adjusting things right. a little. Well, but you know, and but kind of to your point earlier, Jackson, and and to, and sort of on your side, Mason, as well, is that um, you know we're free market people here. Uh, there is a a value, a market value in reputation. And if you're going to drastically change the, for, you know, for lack of a better way of putting this, the formula of your wine, you may want to kind of protect yourself in the market against that is that, you know, we all, we, well, we don't actually all remember this because I think none of us were old enough to remember, but, uh, new Coke versus, mm. versus regular Coke is that they, they changed the formula of Coke. And actually I have something going on right now. I don't eat a lot of candy, but my favorite candy is Butterfinger and they have this new Butterfinger. I hate it. And I had, <laughs> I had one. It is way too real tasting. It doesn't taste artificial enough. <laughs> and, uh, I, the, the whole reason I eat candy is to be, to, you know, for something bad, like to eat something bad. And I really like Butterfingers. They have a new Butterfingers that tastes like peanut. And I'm like, well, this is not what I wanted. And, and I've noticed that when I go to the store now, all of the the quote unquote new Butterfingers are on clearance, and, <laughs> and I think it's because people who like Butterfingers, like me, tried the new Butterfinger and were like, "No, this is this is too peanutty. It doesn't taste like whatever the heck is in butter, Butterfingers normally." Wait, here's the thing: I don't. I had. I've had it, Jacob. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it tasted any different. Really? Really? Oh, I I but, thought it, I thought it was so drastically different. I was like, ugh. I, I don't I remember it. Like, you're training your palate with all this wine to such an extent you're getting the subtleties and butter. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. Is that, well, that and that's what I was going to say. This is one of those things that like is kind of the classic position of the show. Is like I am continually the one who doesn't taste things very well, but like I've always been that way. Like taste is not like there are certain things that I taste extremely. Like salt. Yeah, or, and, or cilantro. Yeah, like, and then that's the thing is like cilantro used to taste 
like physically taste different or whatever the term for what taste is, but it literally tasted different than it does to me now. Now it doesn't taste bad. It's just not a flavor I care for. It's like, it, it's not like immediately revolting like it was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those things where like for me, like I had it and like, I don't eat Butterfinger often enough. So it may have been, I just, you know, if I had an actual Butterfinger and then tried the new Butterfinger, it'd be a problem. But like it, to me, it was such a non-event when you said like they came out with the new Butterfinger. I went, oh yeah, I've had that. I hadn't thought about it since I ate it. Like literally just did not matter to me. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Cause I, I was so offended by it, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this is, let's, let's play, let's kind of, uh, I guess, uh, pivot a little bit to the wider position that Jackson, you alluded to earlier is, uh, do you see a trend in, in grape growing in, and, you know, the, the type of wine that is producing of moving further north or changing to longer ripening varietals. Uh, I know that you have your ear to the ground a lot more than Mason and I do when it comes to that sort of thing. What do you, what do you see going on? Well, yeah, I see a huge movement north. I see, I, I, I think part of it is the climate change, but I think a larger part of it is just a shifting consumer taste. I think people are sick of the fruit bombs that have come out of California. So people want these more acidic, these more savory, these um, more kind of old world style northern wines compared to, say, the fruit bombs that they and very, very much kind of the oversweet, over-oaked wines that were very much in vogue in the 90s mm-hmm. and still kind of dominate the shelves today. But I think, you know, you hear a lot of people, you know, they try Chardonnay, it tastes gross. It's probably because they've had a California heavily oaked one, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a, a much broader shift towards different tasting wines that are more acidic, lighter, um, more old world in style, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. among younger and um, more conscious consumers of wine. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's it's just going to be a major shift. I was when I was in the way I made in Columbia Gorge, vineyards were going up left and right. You could see, and you, you talk to everybody there. The number one thing they want to tell you is how different their area is from California, and how they're making cool wines. How they're they're bragging about how little irrigation. One person on this website I thought was humorous wrote, "Irrigation is the oxycotton of American viticulture." Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> Just, you know, it's very different, the style people are going for now, and I think that's corresponding with climate change is going to push things further north to cooler climate varieties. That, that's interesting because, you know, with the irrigation thing, um, when I was out I, when I out, was out planning with Ricky is he had a not, – not a large section but a small section of his vineyard that was outside of his protective gate. They have, they have different animals and stuff that will come and eat the um, – the grapes if you don't put a protective gate around them um and he he had put a small section of his vineyard out there to not be irrigated and to just sort of be open to the environment and he and you know he's like well you know maybe we can produce something out of this maybe we can't but it'll be really unusual and different if we can produce something out of this because it's not irrigated it's not as it's not as trained and cared for and all that sort of stuff so you'll get a much wilder taste and it might be interesting and it might sell well. So he was just kind of experimenting a little bit with that. And that does seem to be a lot of the people that I met while I was there were younger consumers, probably younger than me, actually. I'm, I'm 32. So these were mostly people probably around your age, Jackson. You're, you're what, 30 or, or 25? Uh, 22. Oh, oh wow. You're, yeah, you're even younger 22. than I thought. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. yeah. So probably closer to your age. These were mostly people about 25, 26. And they were, they were, they were, they were interested in wines that 
were just unusual for the sake of being unusual, but also they were interested in, in things that I had not heard of. So they were, they were very much interested in what was unique things, particularly I'm going to put this in quotes so that you guys can't hear it, but I'm doing air quotes, natty wines. So, uh, which none of them were, none of them, all of them were kind of like, well, we can't define what a natural wine is, but, oh, I, I thought it was, um, that's just... I thought it was a, a natty ice wine. <laughs> no, 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 no. Dog, dog but, crap wine. Yeah. A, a lot of them were saying that, they, well, that was the big argument that was going on while we were planning is a lot of them were saying like, well, you know, nat, natural wines are like this. And, and they were saying, well, then there was a, several guys there who was like, no, there is no definition for natural wine. If you want a real natural wine, you need to get a biodynamic wine. And, uh, so that, that was a big argument that was going on, but that seemed to be like what they were all very focused on at that time. And, and it may be that, that that's just the conversation they had on the, on the drive out there, but, uh, I thought that was interesting that they're, what they were focused on in wine was so different than what I'm focused on in wine. And it was just, it was, yeah. it was fun to, to see that. Yeah. And those kind of, that, that's all over Oregon is that sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think probably down here too, because we do have, although where I was, was the Mount Davis region. There's only like four wineries out there or four vineyards out there, but there's a, a, a couple of, of vineyards that are up in, and actually in Texas, you can't, you can't not have irrigation. It's just doesn't, there's just not enough water in a lot of the places where good wine grows. Uh, but you know, down in, in hill country, there, there is enough and there's a couple of places that are starting to go, well, let's try to do things in like a natural way, less irrigation, um, more, I wouldn't say that they're doing it biodynamic, but kind of more in the biodynamic style, which kind of leads me to, to my other question. And this is, do you think that a lot of the changes that are happening in wine, um, are more related to climate change because, you know, Mason and I are kind of, I wouldn't say we're climate change skeptics because since, since, at least for me, since I've been in the wine world, I see these wineries moving north. Yeah. And, and that can either be climate change or it could be basically what my question is, is better viticulture practices, increased technology, better availability of, uh, basically investment resources. Cause one of the examples I have of this is Virginia where Mason currently lives, where I used to live, is that Virginia for years, even going back to like Thomas Jefferson and before, where they recognized that it was a place that could grow grapes and could grow good grapes, but they struggled for such a long time to produce decent wine and wine that wasn't always molding and getting mildew and all sorts of other problems until the 60s, really, 60s and 70s, when they started actually producing decent wine at a, at a consistent production level. And that was mostly due to technology and, and viticulture practices. Do you, do you see that maybe people are moving north because of climate change gives them the opportunity, but also because we have better technology, better culture, viticultural practices that allow them to plant things further north that would have been too difficult or cost prohibitive before? I, it's, um, my answer, it's a combination of the two. Okay. The thing that's important to remember about climate change, and I think this is one of the best examples I've seen, is if you talk to any vineyard and you ask them, what they're, especially on the West Coast, what their recent vineyards have been like, they say, oh, yeah, we're picking a, a week or so earlier than we used to. So that that very much is real. Even in Oregon, they're picking in September. Okay. Um, so that's a real, very real thing, and I think that's part of why vineyards are moving north. But I think the other thing, too, is just con- the consumer trends – I don't think it's technology as much because, mm-hmm. you know, the wine regions of Europe are all much further north than most of the wine regions of the United States. Virginia mm-hmm. corresponds, you know, to, you know, Napa. It's, you know, yeah. very just 
very different. Yeah, which I, I think Napa is sort of on the same level as like southern Spain. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's, so it's it's quite different. Um, and Virginia is just much more cool, much more extreme climate. I, yeah. You can grow wine there. The problem is if you want to do something like natural wine or really like long term, it's just hard to do it without tons of pesticides and management, mm-hmm. you know, crop management in places like Virginia because of the mildew and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's, I think that's I think that's interesting, uh, Mason. Do you want to comment on that real quick before I move on to the next question I have for Jackson? So, like, that's the the thing. One of the things I think that we're leaving out of this conversation is the global lack of recession in second, first, and second world countries over the last ten plus years. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Federal Reserve has created how many trillions of dollars of new money. Right. So we're seeing a lot of investment projects where, and, and this is one kind of like going back to something that we were talking about with China and the tariffs. One of the things that people don't really seem to understand about like the Chinese economy is like the way that it's very hard for the middle class to get the money out to reinvest. So they bring a lot of things in that get propped up and rebought while they try to build their internal economy but like a lot of them don't trust investing within the internal because they think they're going to get ripped off Mm -hmm. but like that's the same thing is like there's all this money for these big projects because like lehman brothers and like these super big banks and these other like investment firms weren't really allowed to die in the last recession well lehman brothers did but like you didn't have like bank of america like wachovia just go under Mm -hmm. like and then all of that debt become all of that resources become available to be bought up so nobody bought it up and then the fed dumped a bunch of money in so i think there's a lot of these vineyards that are like literally just would not happen otherwise mm-hmm. because uh, there's just so much cash available it, it really depends where you're talking about you know well, like texas specifically oh texas i would buy that i i, I don't you know I, I think you can produce good wine in texas i think you know, some areas of, I think the hill country is too hot for grapes in my personal opinion, but I'm yeah. not going to offend you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, mo- most of, so. most of the hill country wine producers don't produce it with hill country grapes. It's mostly high yeah. plains grapes. Yeah. Exactly. So like for um, me, it's, it's Texas, but like also like a lot of the places in Great Britain that have a lot of expansion, not that Great Britain, like Great Britain is getting warmer in that regard and has had a lot of summers that have been especially warm and things like that. But it's because the market is just not available for them to invest in what they normally would. So they're investing in these projects that don't necessarily make sense. That's the feeling I get. The British, that's not how the British sparkling wine market is. It's very small producers doing champagne style stuff Mm -hmm. and outselling and they're selling for $45, $50 a bottle. It's a very, that's like, uh, that's like corn. It's, it's not, it's not propped up that like, for example, isn't propped up by debt. The area I would worry about are these sort of big heaping central California wineries and some of the larger, maybe vanity projects in Texas, if Mm. you will, that's more what I would. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of vanity projects in, well, even, even well in Hill country a lot, but also even over in, um, Mount Davis, there, there's a few vanity projects as well where the, the people who are actually growing the grapes don't own the don't own the land. They just kind of work it. They don't really know exactly what they're doing. Um, I wouldn't say a lot. There's not very many vineyards out there, but yeah. uh, there are a lot of people who own a lot of land out in that region 
there, like there's one guy who owns 50 square miles out there. And from what I understand, he's trying to put in a vineyard just because it's, he thinks it's a cool idea to just come out there and have a vineyard. You know, a ton of vineyards are just vanity projects that people want to, they want to go to their country house and look at vines, you know, yeah, and there's that's nothing fine. wrong with that. Yeah. But, go ahead. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. I, I cut you off. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I should, I think Mason, you were, you were, you were saying though, I like a lot of those, you know, certain vineyards are, I think. Yeah. Lots. And and that's the thing is I don't necessarily think that, and this is kind of where I don't do a very good job of explaining this, but one of the things I think is it's not necessarily the debt driven, like, um, like Silicon Valley where it's these people have, you know, soaked in a bunch of money. What I mean is like, um, they soaked in a bunch of money that like in debt, like Netflix is just blowing money and creating debt. What, one of the things that I've often think that's kind of underreported is like the people who go into Silicon Valley as not an investor, but an employee make a bunch of money and then just leave and have additional resources and funds. So I, I don't necessarily oh. think it's debt driven. Some of it, much of it is, but there's a lot of this other like people who just suddenly yeah. have funds they wouldn't have had otherwise. I talked to uh, one of the owners of the vineyards I visited. He was uh, there since the nineties in the Willamette Valley growing Pinot Noir and he left, um, Silicon Valley in the nineties to start a vineyard out there. Um, yeah. yeah, smart move. You know, he has his own mm -hmm. beautiful property, you know, quiet. Don't blame him. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm that, that if, I mean, I would, I would kill for some land out there. That would be great. I wouldn't you know, kill. I wouldn't kill, but fantastic <laughs> the guy, he produces amazing wine. Mm -hmm. He only has to have the place open uh, twice a year. I think he bought like a hundred acres, you know, so, and so, you know, and you can, if you have your wine for $40, it's sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that does seem to be kind of the model for, for not Virginia, for Texas as well, is that if you can sell your wine for, you know, 40 bucks a bottle and, and mostly sell it to people who are coming to your vineyard, uh, then, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. Now, granted with Texas wines, I do think they're producing, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say far and few between because, but it's, it's very mixed. There is really outstanding wine, but it seems like the people, and, and I've been kind of getting to know a little bit of the, a little bit more about the, the growers and the wine producers in the area as I just talk to people in general. Um, and it does – it definitely seems to be the people who are interested in producing high quality. It, I, I guarantee that no matter where they are, they would produce high quality because that's what they care about mm -hmm. versus somebody who's just like, yeah, I, I want to produce wine or whatever and, I, and I'm going to produce you know, this – I don't want to name any brands or whatever. But there's certain brands here in Texas that are very quintessential Texas brands and I don't think that they produce very good wine. It's not good for my palate, but it may be fine for other people's palate. But I think mostly it's just kind of people who don't really care that much about it and and they just want to drink a Texas wine, which I would like to kind of take advantage of somehow in the market. But uh, <laughs> we have some ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Jackson. And, and I, yeah, you're aware of it. I've talked to you a little bit about it. But let's 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 uh, let's kind of let's let's pivot a little bit more, but stay on this topic. Is one thing also I've noticed. And it may just be because of where I'm at in my connoisseurship of wine is I've noticed more Bolivian wine, more Peruvian wine, more Ecuadorian wine. And I'm wondering, yeah, there's some Ecuadorian I didn't, wine. I didn't know that was a thing. It's not good, <laughs> but yeah, uh, a, yeah. <laughs> it's very, very far north. But uh, there, there is some, even at Total Wine, there's some, but it, it and I got it and I was just like, I've only poured out two bottles of wine in my life. A Spanish bottle, which 
I don't think was necessarily bad. It just was really, really not for me. And one Ecuadorian bottle. <laughs> and uh, those are the only two that I've ever poured out. And yeah, but you should call Sanja's revenge. <laughs> right, right. But so I have noticed though that there is an expansion in both Bolivia and Peru in particular, that there is an expansion. And from what I understand, I've never seen this before, but I've read a few articles that in some of the higher altitudes of Colombia, they make wine. I, yeah. I, I don't, I've never tried it. I don't know what it's like, but apparently there's an expansion in a lot of these areas and their market is not the United States. Their market is Asia. What weird. That is- it, it is weird. And I'm wondering. Chile has uh, the uh, trade deal with China, so that helps them export, but that's weird. It is weird, and I'm wondering if that is due to market conditions, or what does that say about. What does it say about the climate change? Particularly in. Well, Peru and Bolivia are a little bit further south. I, I would say that probably. What what are, what are those? I think that Peru is like um, Peru can do a little bit just if you yeah. Peru's a little bit below the equator. The thing is, Peru you can actually you can grow grapes. They make a lot of brandy there. They make mm-hmm. a ton of pisco. You might have heard of a pisco yeah. sour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. Uh, that's made from grapes, and that's from Peru. Okay. Um, okay. you can you can kind of grow if you irrigate. You're on the uh, coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Pacific Coast, like in California, gets really kind of cool there. So you're dealing with days in the 70s as compared to 80 degree days. So well, it's, you know, it's not super hot, but it's yeah. just. Well, I've read, I've read, I've read that Peru is one of the few places where you can get two harvests per year from grapes. Yeah. Yeah. That, w- that wouldn't surprise me. Which is, yeah. which is super unusual. You, normally you get one chance. And that's it. But I guess Peru, because they are so close to the equator, they can get two. And I, I have had a couple of Peruvian wines, and I don't know what they're trying to do, but it's not for me, the ones that I've tried. I, I'm, I'm always very interested in trying something new from some place that I've never seen before. Like, like I actually, I know that Brazil uh, produces wine as well, but it's all, it's almost all domestically consumed. It's very rare to get it outside of Brazil. Uh, but it's all very, very, very far south in, um, what's that city down there? Like, it's like Porto Alguerre or something like that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's way far south and uh, down, like way down near like Uruguay. Yeah. Uh, and I guess Uruguay produces some as well, yeah, but it's it, very poor. Arzon makes really nice wine. If you try their Tanat, they do a really good Tanat. Oh, they really? Make a, they make a phenomenal Albarino, one of the best New World Albarinos you can get. Oh, so I, I'm very interested on. in trying that. Okay. Get well, both of those. They're both up your. They're both yeah. right up your palate because you're kind of. It's like a heavy but interesting red in an Albarino. Okay. That that I I will totally look that up. So I I mean that really kind of covers my questions there on climate change. Is that it seems like maybe maybe something else is going on in South America and it may be related to trade and it may be related to domestic tastes because from what I understand about South America, other than Chile and Argentina. Pretty much all of the other producers, it's almost 100% consumed domestically. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is also just people have, you know, places like Peru and Colombia, they've had kind of continually expanding economies for a while. So you have middle classes with a lot more money to spend on wine and, you know, people to go mess around trying to live their vineyard fantasy as well. So that could be part of it too. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of how Chile got started was that they had, they had a sort of an expanding economy there for a while. A lot of the wealthy people wanted to, wanted to have, basically wanted to have vineyards because they were like, well, you know, where, where we're from spain they have that we want to have that as well we want to be like you know a french country gentleman or a a spanish country gentleman we want to have these vineyards and 
actually, I think like Spain had this like we- these weird laws a long time ago where like you couldn't, you weren't allowed to grow grapes in the in the colonies yeah. at all. You had to you had to they, import they, it all. They, their taxes were actually really want to go on a tangent. Made, mostly, made, mostly based off of kind of um, like liquor tariffs and stuff. So they wanted everybody getting as much Spanish wine and brandy as possible. So they would just give it right to the royal family. Oh, that's 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 really that's very interesting. We, you know, we should do a topic on that at some point. But we could do a whole history of you know Spain's impact on yeah. the South American wine industry and the Catholic Church and the tension therein. That would actually that would be a really good episode, Mason. You want to do an episode like that? I I don't have any knowledge on this subject. Well, we, we but would. I think yeah. it would it's be a fantastic episode. We've got plenty of time to research, so we maybe, yeah. maybe we should research and plan that. That would be really fun because okay. I I really like Spanish wines. And it's a super interesting what's going on there, but also just the impact that they've had on all of their former colonies with respect to wine, I think is super interesting as well. Well, look at the mission grave, like how far, Yeah, like the one, the major exception was monasteries where they had to have their own sacramental wine on hand all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's why you had the mission grape kind of go into California, Chile, these like very heat tolerant, drought tolerant grapes kind of went all around, you know. Mm-hmm. South America, all the way up into Texas and California. Oh yeah, we, we, we're actually in here in Texas. There's a lot of uh, wineries who are, uh, I guess, re revisiting Mission grapes and seeing if they can do something interesting with them. And they they are interesting. They're not yeah, they're not one, really for me, but they're interesting. I've heard one really good example is somebody using a hundred year old vines in Central Chile. Oh really? Some really interesting. I've you know I, I was reading that it's actually quite good huh. wine. Like a very rustic, heavy red, but um, yeah, I, for the most part, I think it's a really hard grape to manage. But if the vines are that old; it might be interesting. Yeah, I, I would be. I'd be interested to try some of those. Well, now that we're kind of done with our climate change thing, and we've already moved on to other topics, I've got a couple of other things I wanted to touch on with you, Jackson. Since we've yeah. we've got you on the episode, have you? Well, I, I don't know what your experience is with this, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, co-ferment versus blends. Do you want to oh. – can you explain that to the listeners, like a co-ferment versus a blend, and, and how does that produce something that is different? Um, well, basically, so in winemaking, what occurs is, you know, like after you press the grapes, what you have to do in order to get the grape juice into alcohol, i.e. wine, is you have to ferment it. And the question a lot of uh, vineyards have is – they they plant a variety of different grapes on a variety of different sites. Um, and if they're making a blend, the question they have is whether they want to put those all into the same fermenting uh, fermentation that together and produce kind of a wine where those flavors are, for lack of a better term, more instantaneous and more molded together in that process, or if they're going to create separate wines from separate vineyard tracks or separate grapes mm-hmm. and to taste those wines individually and to analyze them and to make a blend afterwards. So that's sort of, those are the two different approaches and they both have merits and there's pretty good arguments in favor of either of them. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two schools. I Some of the best wines I've had uh, are made in either method. Um, okay. uh, I, you know, I, I think it partially depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to achieve finesse and precision, I would, I would prefer blending individual wines together. I, but you know, it's very subjective. And if you're trying to like one, the, one of the more interesting wines I had recently in the Columbia Gorge was actually a 70, 30 Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris blend, but it was co-fermented together and 
continually macerated for a long time. So it actually produced a red that was heavier than Pinot Noir, almost Nebbiolo-like in strength, and they huh. aged that for years. And it was a phenomenal wine, you know, hundred dollar wine, but it was really interesting that they did that. That that, that sounds uh, one of the 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 concept of co-ferment was kind of introduced to me by. Um, Craig Camp from Troon Vineyards when I did an interview with him and he, he does, you know, he's got a biodynamic vineyard. Yeah, I like what he, I like what he does a lot. Yeah, well, he was, he was saying he, he they like to do co-ferments sometimes, but it, uh-huh. but his thing was, he's, it, sort of to your point, was he was saying it, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to see basically what the yeast is going to do with the acidity and and the sugars and all that sort of stuff from these two together, you're you're going to achieve something very different at the end from if you fermented them separately and then tasted them and then went, okay, I need this percent of this and this percent of this. And you're just getting something – like you, like you said, you're getting a much more precise – uh, precise thing happening when you're blending them because you can really control the percentages of flavor that you're getting. Whereas with the co-ferment, it's like, you know what? You put them together, whatever happens, it happens. And, and you don't have any control over how the yeast affects that particular amalgamation of grapes or grape juice at that point. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that's very interesting. Um, let me let me move on to the next one because I think that was a good a good. Uh, unless Mason, you want to say something about that? I I have a completely non-starter. Okay. Um, because I was trying to figure out like I forgot Uruguay was south of Brazil. Okay. So I was looking at <laughs> Google Maps. Yeah. And randomly clicked on Bolivia and randomly clicked on the capital of Bolivia, um, just because I was like, oh, you know, La Paz. Let me look at it. And randomly clicked on a hotel and their restaurant. One of the things they talk about is Bolivian wines. Oh, really? Interesting. So, yeah, they were like, um, you know, Bolivian produce Bolivia produces Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chardonnay, which basically like we produce all the normal ones. Yeah. But apparently, their national grape is Muscat. Oh yeah, no, they have the uh, highest altitude vineyards in the world, if I'm correct, at twelve thousand feet. Holy cow! Yeah, that so, is that is like, very high. So they can actually – you can make a case that you can make decent wine in Bolivia because you're just dealing with such high altitudes. And if you're far south enough there, then you can actually get seasons like you do in Salta, Argentina, which is also very high altitude but quite far enough. Also like the uh, the main region they list is Teresia. Um, that's where they kind of produce most of the, the – like kind of the wine-growing region. And according to Wikipedia, basically the average daily high all year, 78 to 83. Or wow. like eighty six, like it doesn't vary very much. So wow. I was like, okay. nice like, like for a growing season, like that that temperature may be warmer than you want, but like if you could get a varietal that like just didn't mind being warm most almost all day long, there you go. <laughs> like, yeah, that, and that, that is very that is very very interesting. I, I we one of these days when our show grows like really big, or we just become billionaires from our. Uh, independent businesses. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Within, go, go on the run and escape to Bolivia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Escape, escape to Bolivia. Um, like, uh, wasn't it Jesse James? Not Jesse James, but um, there was there's some gunslingers that like went down South America way, and I thought Bolivia is where they went. So. Oh, pa, uh, pa, no, not Pancho and Lefty. Um, yeah, but yeah. like, is it, yeah, there's a so- there's a song where they all go to South America, and I can't remember what it is, but. 
let me let me move on to my next question though. Um, yeah, <laughs> this 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 will use this to kind of close out the episode because we're we're running a little bit late. Uh, Jackson, you are you have your ear to the ground. You know what's going on in wine, particularly in your in your neck of the woods. What do you think is an up and coming wine region or an existing wine region where you think there's something exciting going on that you think that our listeners should keep their eye out for? I think people should look for the for northwestern wines in particular. I think there's going to be a massive growth in wineries in Washington State and Oregon. I think the basically consumer, the climate there is much more similar to parts of Europe, so it allows much more acidity, much better structure in your wines in some areas of California if you're looking for a particular style. And so from what I can tell, Columbia Gorge, I think, is going to get larger. Wilmette Valley, I think, is still underplanted. I think those two areas are two that, and I visited them both. I'm very excited about what's coming out, and particularly just the geographic and geological diversity in somewhere like the Columbia Gorge where, you know, you go 20 miles and it's a completely different climate. You can go from, you know, northwest rainforest to high desert in an hour. It's incredible. Wow. Wow. What what, what are some of the types of wine or, or styles that they're looking to produce in those areas that you are particularly excited for? So in the Gorge, I, the Wilmette is famous for Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay right now. And mm-hmm. they're producing other stuff, and it's, you know, they're I, I'd say per capita they're doing some of the, probably the highest quality wine in the United States per winery. Mm-hmm. In the Wilmette, I think I'd be confident to make that um, guess. But in general, they're doing more kind of traditional Burgundian style, Burgundian wines, so Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Gorge, you can do everything ranging from Pinot Noir to Cabernet to Syrah to Mobedra mm-hmm. in the more eastern parts of it. Mm-hmm. And okay. on the more western side, you run into Riesling, Krunerfeld Liner, Gewürztraminer, you know, mm-hmm. it basically whatever you can imagine that's northern climate. I've had um, some Italian, like Barbera, some Italian varieties from there as well. Okay. That uh, that sounds very interesting to me. I think, you know, yeah. I love I love uh, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. So I will definitely start keeping my eye out for some of those other ones. Mason, on that same note, do you have anything that you're excited to try soon? I know that you're not going to be necessarily picking regions or anything like that, but do you have anything in your sites or down your pipeline that you want to share with the listeners that you're kind of excited to try? Well, so by like down the pipe, I am going to be at this time next week in Texas. That's right. The first extended time I've ever been in Texas that isn't um, like way north Texas just driving through. Mm -hmm. So I am excited to be trying at least one Albarino um, that I believe you have set aside that's a Texas one. Um. I thought I had. I think I've set aside a vignette for you, a Texas vignette. Okay. I don't know. I mean, either either way. I do like have I, an I'm, I do have an Albarino, but it's not Texas. Uh, it's a Spanish one that I think you should try because I think it's one of the best Albarinos I've ever had, and it's it's Spanish though. Yeah, but so that's the thing is like there's you know you yeah I think your collection has grown to fifty plus bottles. Yeah, and we're going to three wineries, yeah. so I'll be driving the wine van. So that's right. I won't be drinking at the wineries themselves. So I I'm looking forward to like in Virginia I'm within striking distance of several different wineries and I don't ever go visit them because like I have a two-year-old and they're generally not places for two-year-olds and my wife doesn't care that much about like she enjoys a good glass of wine but it's not a big thing to her right um, right to like what we're interested in so like to me it's, it's kind of a like to be out with a group of people that want to go to a winery and then picking up a few bottles um, from the different wineries to 
possibly bring back with me and then trying the stuff that you've been kind of talking about for the mm-hmm. last, you know, call it six and a half months is kind of the, the thing that I'm most looking forward to. Now, as usual, I'm I'm super interested in trying to get my hands on some more Georgian wines. Yeah. Um, so I've been contemplating making a, a run to, you know, D.C. because there are several Georgian wine stores in D.C. because there's a Georgian wine importer in D.C. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've DC's- always wanted to. Yeah, there's a lot of good wine stores in DC, but yeah. <laughs> so like, like my biggest focus is always kind of like just getting a a good deal, but also like I really want to try more Georgian stuff because I I think that's where like for wine trips that aren't like hey Jackson's going to be in Portugal and we can make it or something like that. Oh yeah, and seeing you know seeing something like that and like Georgia is kind of where I want to go. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I, I want to go. I want to yeah. go out and see you, Jackson, in in Oregon and Washington, and yeah, visit, yeah. visit those. How many times? Yeah, All right, we got um, we got to plan that out. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh yeah, no. I I wanted to just uh, mention one thing to Mason that I kind of I caught on last on the last episode you did, and it was mm-hmm. saying he found it a lot easier to taste white wines and reds, and I was. Um, really nodding in my head because when I first got into wine tasting and when you're really trying to study it, it's a lot easier to, I find whites a lot easier on the nose and to pick out the differences aromatically. And so I was going to encourage him. to. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the thing for me is like, um, you know, like the, the, the wine I had tonight, like the, every glass has been a little different now like the last one i had open for you know 40 plus minutes which is usually a little rare but i still had it and it was super aggressive up front i was just like this was my second glass and i was like what is this <laughs> what's going on here all right well let, let me go ahead and close out real quick with what i think the listeners should be looking out for and most of the yes. listeners that we have are in texas um so I do think that Texas ha- is taking a nice shift, and that is shifting toward southern France and Italian varietals. They, they do Spanish varietals pretty well already, but uh, I guess Al- Aglianico and Dolcetto are making um, big turns here in Texas High Plains in particular. And a, a southern, I believe it's southern French varietal, uh, Tanat, is also starting to be planted a lot here. I'm, I'm really excited for that. I've had some Aglianico from Texas, and it's, it's good. I think that they could do better, and I think they're kind of learning how to do better. Uh, so that is what I'm excited to see coming out of here. If you're more into white wine, Pinot Grigio or is going to be, um, I guess, more widely planted here. They already do Albarino and Vignet. The Vignet can be good. The Albarino, I think, is pretty good for the most part. So uh, that would be my prediction is, is take a look at that, particularly in the um, Mount Davis region of Texas because it's much higher altitude. You're talking about 5,000 feet, so you do have different seasons. Now, the one thing they do have to watch out for there is late frost, But although they have the same problem in high plains because high plains you're looking at almost 3,000 feet. It's a high desert. Uh, so they do get these kind of odd late frost, une- unexpected weather, uh, weather, weather. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you know in the in the episode that I did with Rowdy that he was talking about is just unexpected hail. Like this year, almost ninety percent of his crop was wiped out by hail, which is a good opportunity for me. But unfortunate for him, the good opportunity for me is that I get to go out there and help him pick it, help him make mm-hmm. a help him make a field blend, and then hopefully I'll be able to get a bottle or two of that field blend when he's selling it. Uh, so that is pretty much all I have. Jackson, do you want to do any plugs or anything? Um, I know that you are 
still working on your wine import export business, but you also have other projects. Anything that you want to share with listeners, or is this all uh, still in the works and and not ready for public consumption? Still in the works, but um, yeah. Okay. Well, then just have the, everybody follow Jackson at Jackson Blood One on Twitter. He's one of my favorite follows, and he always has not only good stuff to say about wine, but he is also um, very well versed in beer. Uh, I, and I don't even really drink beer, but we be you I, know what? <laughs> but you know a lot about it. <laughs> so, uh, Mason, do you want to go ahead and do our tasting anarchy plugs before we close? Certainly, you can follow us on ta- uh, follow us on Twitter, Tasting Anarchies. So you see Jacob uh, out there. Jacking it up at Elizabeth Warren quite often. Um, you can also send us an email at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. There's also tastinganarchy.com. And one we often, quite, quite often forget to plug is we're on YouTube. So right. all the episodes posted to YouTube. Um, so you can go and listen to them there if you don't like listening to podcasts on podcast, actual podcasts, uh, for some reason. And then I think Jacob, you also do some Instagramming where Foxy makes quite a, uh, that's right. Heavy appearance. Yeah, that's right. So Instagram, it's mostly the wines that I'm drinking, uh, and a little bit of inter- interaction with people who listen to our show from Instagram, but mostly it's just pictures of what I'm drinking and, and Foxy, my dog. Um, so if you want to follow us there, that it's, you know, tasting anarchy on Instagram, same, same as basically same as all of our handles. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like there's, Oh, follow Childeberg on Twitter at Childeberg. Yes. So there's quite a bunch of stuff coming. That's right. And I, it's happening. <laughs> yeah. When this, when this episode drops, it'll be Childeberg is tomorrow when this episode drops. So you might be listening to this on your way to Childeberg. You might be listening to this after, but Go ahead and take take a look at the Childerberg Twitter because you'll be able to see all the fun happenings and stuff on that. Um, I think that's it for me and Mason. I will let yeah. you have the last word, Jackson. And if you have nothing else to say, we'll just say stay free. So, Jackson, what do you got? Stay free. Thanks for having me on. All right. Always stay free. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfrey at Willis Den, he wasn't sailing for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine, he hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day, wine, wine for the other day, wine, wine for the other day, wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine.